Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom brush, uh, broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled for forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram, also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Good morning. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Dave. It's lovely to see you all here this morning. Let me move this so I don't kick it over. Um, thanks very much, Chris, for leading. Thank you for pointing us to this passage. We're going to be in 1 Kings 19 today. Um, I'm going to be referring to that passage. You might find it helpful to have it open on your lap. Um, <laughs> I wrote this introduction earlier in the week. It seems particularly fitting. I think Joel and Grace will know. The, f the opening line is, how do you react when things don't go to plan? As I was running down from EK with a flash drive, which had all the song lyrics on. Um, Joel and Grace know how that feeling. But how do you react when things don't go as you had hoped or as you had planned? Now, a few years ago, um, I got a little bit into brewing my own beer. Now, the first time I did it, I pretty much just threw all the ingredients together and hoped for the best. And actually, 
I'm going to move this. It's getting in my face. Um, and actually, it was a great thing because I think I just fluked it and actually ended up with quite a good bit of beer. I was delighted. And I thought, you know, that's great. That went better than I expected. But next time, it's going to be really good. Next time, I'm going to do even better. So because it went so well, I thought I'd try something a little bit more advanced. It was still beer, but a slightly more tricky one. And I thought, right, I'm really going to research fermentation processes. I'm going to really research sterilization and what yeast and what sugar is best to use and all those different things. And when I did it, I spent a lot of time researching what would be best. I even used bottled mineral water rather than just tap water. And when I put it all together, I thought this is going to be an excellent bit of beer. Fast forward a couple of months and I put a couple of bottles in the fridge. And when I opened the first one, it was as if I was on the grandstand having just won the Grand Prix. This thing just erupted and went everywhere. Now, I was a little bit concerned, but I thought, it's all right. I've got 39 more bottles over here. <laughs> I'll just try another one. But the same thing happened again. You see, what I didn't realize was that the temperature in that initial stage of fermentation is really very important. And unfortunately, a couple of unseasonally warm days had ruined 40 bottles of beer. I was absolutely gutted. The first time I brewed, I'd pretty much just thrown the things together. So I didn't really have much expectation but then the second time, I'd thrown myself into it. As far as I'd concerned, I'd followed all the instructions. And as a result, I was expecting some top quality beer. I was gutted. I felt like throwing away all of my homebrew equipment. Now, in today's passage, we see how Elijah reacts when despite all of his hard work, things don't go the way he planned. You might remember last week that we looked at one of the most famous incidents in Elijah's life. He shows this incredible faith as he steps out in faith for God and challenges 400 prophets of Baal to a God contest. A contest which would show who the real God was. Now he knew that defeat would mean death for him. But he had complete trust in the one true God. And God showed him that his trust was well placed. In a dramatic scene, God rains down fire from heaven onto an altar, showing without a shadow of a doubt who is the one true God. The Israelites see this and they exclaim, The Lord, he is God. They seize all the prophets of Baal and they execute them. Elijah publicly stepped out in faith and I think it's fair to say that he was expecting some big changes as a result. And to begin with, it looked like big changes were coming about. The chapter finishes with Elijah tucking his uh, cloak into his belt and running all the way to Jezreel, supernaturally beating Ahab there who's riding in a chariot. It seems like Elijah wants front row seats to watch the people of Israel rise up and revolt against the evil king Ahab and his dreadful, king, uh, his dreadful queen Jezebel. But in chapter 19, we see that things do not go as he had planned. Verse 1 begins, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow 
I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Some modern theologians have actually suggested that these two passages being next to one another was an editorial mistake by the author of 1 Kings. That there's no way that the Elijah we see with such courageous attitude in chapter 18 could be the same Elijah that we see in chapter 19, who's running for his life. Now hopefully it won't surprise you to know that I disagree with that. There are no mistakes in God's word. This is not an editorial mistake. In fact, God made sure that these encounters went side by side to remind us of something very important. Often, our most painful spiritual lows come right after some of our greatest highs. Elijah has just seen fire rain down from heaven and a few verses later, he is running for his life. He's despondent and he's wishing that he was dead. Now the key to understanding why Elijah goes from these heights of faith to the depths of despair can be found in verse 10. And then just in case you missed it, it's repeated word for word exactly the same in verse 14. So read either of those verses, this is what it says. Elijah talking to God says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Do you see what Elijah is saying here? I have been zealous for you, Lord. I stepped out in faith, and nothing has changed. Actually, scrap that. It's now worse than it was before I did all that. Now they've turned on me as well. Obedience hasn't made things better. It's made it worse. As far as Elijah was concerned, he had done his part. Just like my homebrew, he'd followed all the instructions as closely as he could, and he was expecting some dramatic results. He expected Ahab and Jezebel to be overthrown, and for the people of Israel to turn back to God. But instead, all it seems to have done is aroused the indignation of Jezebel, who wanted Elijah dead as soon as possible. Now things not going the way that Elijah had hoped was a devastating blow for him. Especially when you think what he hoped for was a really good thing. He wanted those who were acting evilly to be meet justice and he wanted Israel to turn back to God. In verse 3 we see that Elijah dismisses his servant. Now Elijah didn't have a servant because he was rich. He had a servant because he was a prophet. And the act of dismissing that prophet, was eff- that servant, was effectively Elijah saying, that's it, I quit, I'm leaving the ministry, I don't want any more of this. He wanders into the wilderness, he curls up under a bush, and he wishes he was dead. Look what he prays in verse 4, I've had enough, Lord, take my life from me. This great prophet is utterly dejected he took a huge step of faith and as far as he's concerned things are now worse because of it he'd done his part he'd followed all of the lord's instructions and he felt like god had not done his part elijah was feeling utterly broken 
Can anyone relate to that? I can. God promises us rich rewards when we follow him. And he always keeps his promises. But stepping out in faith and being obedient to God will be really costly. Sometimes it will feel like you've followed all of God's instructions and far from rewarding that obedience, your life actually becomes more difficult. In chapter 18, we saw God meet Elijah in the highs of his faith. The question I want to explore this morning is how does God meet Elijah in the lows, in despair? How does he meet us when we want to curl up under a bush and die? Well, I want to point out three things that God does in this passage. Firstly, God sees that we are human. Secondly, he shows us his presence. And thirdly, he reveals his plan. So point one, he sees that we are human. Elijah falls asleep under a bush, presumably hoping he will never wake up again. But then in verse five, it says, all at once an angel touched him. And what do you think the angel says to him? Wake up, Elijah. I've got a great book here I want you to read on struggling with depression. Or maybe a podcast I think you should listen to. Or maybe a course which would be helpful for you to attend. Now, all of those things might be really helpful, but that is not what the angel does. The angel gives him food, drink, and rest. He actually says, get up and eat. And then in verse 6, Elijah looked around, and there by his head was some bread, bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. A mistake we can make is to think that God is only concerned with our spiritual health. And he is concerned. He wants us to see that we have a deep spiritual need. And until that need has been met, we will have no hope. But he also wants us to know that we have physical needs and he recognises those physical needs. Some religions call its followers just to ignore or cast off their physical needs, which are seen as primitive or perhaps even dirty. God does not. God is the one who gave us spiritual life, but he also gave us physical bodies. And he knows that the two are intimately connected. God cares about our spiritual health, but he also sees our physical needs. If we completely neglect our physical needs, then our emotional and our spiritual health will also suffer. Now, Elijah was in a bad way at the beginning of this passage. From his perspective, his problems look very big and God looked very small. He needs God to come in and correct that view for him and show him that the opposite is true. But before he addresses that spiritual need, God sees that Elijah is physically exhausted. He gives him some food. He gives him a drink and he leaves him to sleep. God recognises our physical needs. Do we? I speak to so many Christians who say to me, I am exhausted. I want to spend more time with Jesus. I want to do more in serving him, but I'm just too busy or I'm too tired. Now, on the one hand, that is a spiritual problem. 
but we must not neglect the physical contributors to that. If we're staying up late every night watching Netflix and scrolling through our phone, then we're going to be exhausted. Occasionally, we all have to put in some extra hours at work. But if that has become your normal routine, if every day you have to start early and finish late, it's going to start cause you to start slipping in your faith. If you've got yourself into a lifestyle where you have to work like that every hour under the sun to keep that lifestyle going, then maybe you need to address that problem before you start looking for a book about how to fit Jesus around the edges of your already chaotic life. If you're married and your spouse is exhausted, are you doing all you can to recognise their physical needs? Maybe, just like Elijah, the thing that they need is not a link to a podcast, it's a good meal and a nap. Perhaps if you give them those things, they might be in a better position to receive that podcast. If your faith has been stagnating for some time, have you considered the physical factors that contribute to that? Sleep, diet, exercise, your work-life balance... Now, ultimately, our spiritual needs should be put first. But if you ignore your God-given physical needs, it's going to make things harder. Someone who really understood that was the missionary Jim Elliott. Many of you will know that he was martyred as he went to go and tell people about Jesus. He cared a lot about his spiritual life. But did you know that when he was at college, he took up wrestling? It wasn't because he enjoyed violence, but it was because he recognised that it made him fit and strong. In his own words, he did it with the ultimate end of presenting a more useful body as a living sacrifice. Part of his spiritual act of worship was to take care of his physical needs. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, I wish I could have a rest. But due to circumstances outside of my control, usually small ones, I'm unable to get any rest. There will be seasons in life where physical rest really does feel elusive. I am not trying to add guilt to your tiredness. The point here is to see that we have a God who sees his people. We have a God who sees that we are human and who cares not only about our spiritual health, but he cares for us completely. And one day, he will redeem us completely. He cares about our physical body so much that he sent his son in a physical body so that one day we would not just be redeemed spiritually, but physically. Our physical bodies will rise again because Jesus came in a body. This angel leaves him to sleep. It's a wonderful example of God's grace towards an ungrateful people. In verse 7, the angel returns and wakes Elijah with more food to prepare him for a journey to a place called Horeb, which is another name for a place called Sinai, the mountain of God, the place where God gave his people the Ten Commandments, the place where God revealed his glory to Moses. This is where... Point two, God shows Elijah his presence. 
Now in verse 9, Elijah arrives at the mountain and he finds a cave where he spends the night. He seems to have just swapped a bush for a cave. God says to him, what are you doing here? Or to put it another way, why have you left the ministry that I gave you? Why have you left my people alone? Finally, here, Elijah shares his mind. He says, I was zealous for you, and now my life is worse. I am the only one left. Do you see, Elijah feels all alone. God is about to show him he was never alone. Reading from verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Elijah had seen many extraordinary acts of God. He'd he'd expected to see God show up in Jezreel. He'd expected for God to overthrow Ahab and Jezebel. And when that hadn't happened, perhaps he presumed, well, God's just not here. On this mountain, God would show Elijah that he can reveal himself in the spectacular, but he can also do it in the ordinary. Is looking for God in the spectacular meaning that you're missing him in the ordinary? We want God to reveal himself in earthquake, in wind and in fire. But most of the time we need to learn to seek his presence in a gentle whisper. As Elijah stands on the mountain, the wind, the earthquake and the fire send him cowering back into the cave. But then in verse 13, the gentle whisper draws him out that's when he hears God speak friends God speaks in countless different ways to countless different people throughout the Bible we must be very careful about putting God in a box and dictating the only ways in which he can speak to us today but we must see the importance of what this passage is showing us Perhaps you need to stop looking for God in the extraordinary and instead pick up your Bible and hear him speak to you through ordinary means. If you do that prayerfully, you will see that just because the means are ordinary does not mean that the message is. As I've dwelt on this passage this week, I have felt God talk to me as if I were on the mountaintop with Elijah. Elijah's cross with God that things have not gone according to his plan. And God meets with him, not in judgment, not in frustration or condemnation, but with gentleness and grace. As I've read, God has reminded me that despite our small view of God, Despite our ingratitude, despite the ease with which we throw in the towel, God never gives up on his people. And he has a plan. That's my third point this morning. God reveals his plan. When I look at my own faith, I often despair. 
There have been many times where God has powerfully revealed his grace and his love to me. In those moments, I see that God's love is not only incredible, it's completely undeserved. In those moments, my heart feels like bursting as I dwell on the undeserved love of Christ. As I consider the fact that God not only forgives me, but that he welcomes me into his family as a child of God. But then the moment just seems to pass. And before I know it, I'm slipping back into rebellion and into sin. Isn't that the story that we see in this passage? Elijah has had a meal and a drink provided for him. He's just gone onto a mountain and heard God reveal himself to him. How do you think Elijah reacts? Nothing changes. In verse 14, which comes just after this revelation from God, it is word for word exactly the same as what he said before this revelation. He repeats, I was zealous for you and now I'm all alone. If there was a limit to God's grace, I'm pretty sure he would have now reached it. But God shows that there isn't. He shows his people grace upon grace. The only thing greater than our ability to sin and wonder from God is God's ability to forgive and draw us back to him. In verse 15, God effectively says to Elijah, things didn't go according to your plan. My plan will never fail. In the same way that I can show my presence in the ordinary, in the gentle whisper, I can also fulfill my plans using ordinary means. Go out and resume following me. Anoint the men I have chosen and leave the fulfillment of my plans to me. You thought all this was just to overthrow Ahab and Jezebel. The trouble is with you, your plans are too small. I've got bigger plans than that. In the New Testament, we see Jesus' disciples make the same mistake that Elijah does. They knew God was going to send a king. And they wanted one who came in power, who turned up in fire and glory and defeated the enemies of God forever. They wanted a warrior Messiah who would send enemies running. They had a plan for how Jesus was going to triumph. This meant that when Jesus was nailed to a cross, all that they could see was defeat. Like Elijah, their plan for what Jesus would accomplish was too small. If Jesus had come 2,000 years ago in judgment against the wicked, they failed to see that no one would stand. They wouldn't stand and we wouldn't stand. Because evil is not out there somewhere in other people. Evil is in here, in each of our own hearts. We all choose to rebel against God. And not only do we choose that rebellion, we are born into that rebellion. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And because of that, we deserve nothing from God but his judgment. On Good Friday, it looked like God's plans had failed. It looked like defeat. But God wasn't finished. Because on Easter Sunday, he would raise Jesus to life. 
so that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus can be saved. If there hasn't been already, there will be times in your life when despite your obedience to God, or perhaps even because of your obedience to God, you feel like you've been left all alone. Perhaps you feel like you want to curl up under a bush and die. It feels like his plans have been thwarted. Maybe that's because of cancer. Maybe that's because of financial woes or a marriage on the rocks. Maybe that's because of inoperable brain tumours. The devil would love us to look at each of those things and conclude, I'm all alone. He's left me. Elijah thought his plan was better than God's. He could see no good reason why God would not overthrow Ahab and Jezebel and cause Israel to return to God. Because of that, he wanted to give up. Sometimes things happen in our lives and we can think it shouldn't be like this. How could a loving God allow something like this to happen? In those moments, we are presented with a very difficult decision. Will we continue to think that we know better, that our plan is better, and allow bitterness to take root in our hearts? Or will we take God at his word? He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, In all things God works for the good of those who love him. In those moments, will you trust that we have a good God who wants good things for his people? Will you ask him to give you the strength not to walk by sight, but by faith? If you feel you're losing that battle at the moment, then know that you're in good company. One of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament quit his ministry, curled up under a bush and asked God to let him die before God spoke to him and gently called him back to him. Friends, if you feel abandoned by God, if you feel that despite your obedience, his plans look like they've failed, then with all your strength, can I encourage you to look to Jesus, to look to the cross And see that even in what looked like the greatest defeat was used by God to bring about the most wonderful victory. God doesn't just tell us that he loves us. God doesn't just tell us that he wants good things for us. He shows us and he did it on the cross.